0: Hello, and welcome back to your pumpkin patch proprietor's favorite podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Jason Sieber, the associate conductor of the Kansas City Symphony.
1: I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the education manager.
2: And I'm Mike Gordon, principal flute of the Kansas City Symphony. So although the Kansas City Symphony has been hard at work bringing chamber music performances to the community through our mobile music box series, one of the things we're missing most, aside from performing together as a full orchestra, of course— is performing with guest soloists. So I'm really
1: excited to chat with this week's guest, who I happen to have met over a decade ago, and that's really gonna age me, you guys, I know. (laughs) Um, But we were both living in San Antonio, Texas at the time. I was a full-fledged adult, at least in age, (laughs) uh, and I was working with the San Antonio Symphony, um, at the time. And Nancy was a young budding violinist who was very clearly destined for a big career. So please welcome to the show, Nancy Zhou. Hi, Nancy.
3: Hi, everyone.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: We're glad to have you.
1: I'm so excited to have you here, Nancy. I as well. So when I met Nancy, she was she was 14, and she won the San Antonio Symphony's Future Stars Concerto Competition. Um and that year, I think, so you made your debut with the symphony later that year. And I, I want to say that was probably your first performance with a major orchestra, maybe, at the time. That, <laughs> You're nodding, maybe, yes.
3: That is the one that I have listed on my bio, so I think that that's correct. <laughs>
1: there you go. There have been so many. So I know it was a while ago, but um, I wonder if you remember anything from that experience or just, you know, what it was like entering competitions at that age and kind of where you've gone since then?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, when you're, I I don't even remember how old I was, but if if it was at the age of nine, you don't really put too much thought into the idea of competing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's more of just an event where you perform. So I I think my father was quite good at um, at least uh, training me in such a way so that when I did Compete. It was just more of a opportunity again to perform. So I didn't think too much about it. There was definitely not so much stress. I just remember that I was, of course, very happy to win. But it was more of a, I guess, an opportunity to to perform with people that I've known for such a long time in my hometown. So definitely, it was a, it was fun. That's that's all. Simply put, yeah.
1: I'm really glad that you said that too, because um, you know I've worked with a few orchestras in in this capacity and. Mm-hmm. It's always been my goal in these types of competitions that are geared toward young players um, to make it less competition focused and more just about having a positive experience in a in a pressure situation. So I want the those students and those performers to be able to come in and give them you know everything that they need to do their best, so that all they have to do is walk out on stage and do that. and And I think that's really important in. The development of young performers is, you know, it would be very easy to scare somebody away if you have a, a negative early, you know, performance or competition experience, and that's something that I strive for every year when we host these competitions, and I think it's mm-hmm. really
0: important.
3: Yeah, I totally agreed.
0: So, Nancy, you were here in January, I believe it was of mm-hmm. this year, uh, performing the Mendelssohn Concerto with the KC Symphony, mm-hmm. and Peter Unjin was on the podium. It was such a great week of music making. I really enjoyed. Um, your performance of the Mendelssohn, I mean, that's a concerto, of course, that gets played often. Yeah. And so it's so easy uh, for us to take for granted what, a, what an incredible piece of music it, it is. And your performance of it was just magnificent. We, we so you. enjoyed having you here and, and having you play with us. And that was, of course, as a result of winning the uh, 2018 Shanghai Isaac Stern Violin Competition, a very prestigious competition that happens every other year. Uh, you also won the Harbin International Violin Competition, I believe, that that same year. Um, you were on a roll in 2018, Nancy. Um, how do these major international competitions work? Uh, how do you go about selecting your repertoire? Um, just talk to our audience a little bit about that process of, of participating in a major competition like, like those two.
3: I had the privilege of... Um Building up a good foundation, uh, you know, experience with working with competitions. Um, but I would say the preparation for these two and back in 2018 was the most complete. Um, if I look back and re- evaluate, and and that is because I don't think I. I mean, I was set to to do my best, of course, but it was more of a mindset focused on preparing and getting to know each piece as uh, thoroughly as possible. So in that sense, I think I try to set no parameters around the, uh, the repertoire other than the ones that were given by the administration and competition organizers. Or, um, organizers. Um, but I try to just treat it as an exploration, like a huge project of, of getting to know as completely, you know, a wide variety of pieces um, from different sets of composers from different time periods. So, um, it was quite healthy. It was less toxic than than the ones that I did, <laughs> you know, a few years ago, um, because I think once you hit a certain age, when you when you're older than eighteen, you start treating it as some, you know, pressurized environment when you compete. And I think I learned how to cope with that kind of feeling and disengage from that. Um, So just a big project, I think. I I didn't try to think of it as a
0: competition. Yeah. Yeah. Now a competition like this is sort of like an Olympic event. I mean, it's not only months and months of preparation, but what's different from this, as opposed to just preparing a concerto for a weekend like you did with the Mendelssohn, is you're preparing many different Mm -hmm. pieces. Just talk a little bit about the process of the rounds of a competition and how much music you truly have to learn.
3: For the stern, it was quite a heavy load. Um, the first round, we had to present a recital for recital program, but mainly solo pieces, um, and those were pieces that I have been working on over the years. Uh, and you know, for example, Bach sonata and Eze sonata. So these were pieces that I've already been studying before. And then the second round, you had two parts, two components. You had chamber music, where we got to play, I think, Haydn Quintet quartet. With the Shanghai Quartet. Um, and that yeah. was an area where I felt a little bit skeptical about because I mean, I've, I've been to chamber music um, festivals, but I've not had so much experience in that aspect. So mm-hmm. it's a little bit hectic for me. Uh, and then we had another half recital program with a Beethoven sonata, um, with also, I think, a required um, encore piece, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then Finally, you come to the final round where you have your your standard commissioned work that you have to play with the orchestra, and then also a full concerto. So, if you look at it completely, it wasn't too much repertoire, but it was challenging in the sense that it really tested the candidate from very different aspects. You had chamber music, it solo works, you had modern music to to really delve into, and then you had your standard repertoire, you know, just a concerto with the orchestra. So, different facets were
1: a lot of
0: music yeah a lot of music
1: well i'm curious too i mean you obviously spent a lot of time with that music is there anything on that list that you were happy to see go once the competition was over oh. anything that you <laughs> you don't you're glad that you don't have to look at again for a while
3: um miraculously i don't think so no i i was i was actually hoping that you would uh ask me the the exact reverse question if, if there was like you know if there was a piece that I really enjoyed um but if I really had to choose I would say Paganini caprices in the first round yeah. <laughs> but I mean that's that's also something that I that I enjoy challenging myself with so I I mean not really I, I have to say yeah
1: Okay, well then let's be fair. Let's ask you the reverse <laughs> of that then okay, and all right. <laughs> what what are you really excited that you that you learned or that you know you look forward to to
3: yeah keep exploring. Um, so there I would have to say it would be the commissioned work that I had to play in the final round. Um so the work was by a w- really well-known Shang uh, composer, Sun Shigong, and he wrote a work that I have I, but I myself feel like it's unparalleled in in the way it's constructed. The whole structure is very episodic, and in the way it segues. It's it's such a gorgeous piece that, of course, was premiered by all the candidates uh, in in the final round. And it's called Le Joie de la Souffrance, which means the joy of suffering. So I think the title itself already has so much complexity that it really just uh, attracted me to to the piece itself. Um, but. Definitely, I will be performing that next year again. So it's, it's something that that is always within my radar.
2: So I I find it so impressive, musicians, you know, such as yourself, who who really dedicate themselves to competitions. And you know, I have done exactly one competition in my whole life. It was when <laughs> I was in high school, and I remember I spent an entire summer dedicating to my dedicating myself to. Uh, maybe three or four pieces of, of music. It it was an all flute competition. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, against uh, other instruments. And, you know, I went and I did, did the competition and I, I thought I played well and I got second prize and I was, you know, very happy with that. And I thought, Oh my God, I'm never going to do this again. So I, 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 I'm so impressed. At people uh, who who keep putting themselves uh, through this process, and who, people who who learn to embrace it and enjoy it and find it something that motivates their artistry, and you know, you you even said yourself that early on you felt like it was somehow a, a toxic process for you, and I think that happens to a lot of people. And to find the positivity in it and have it be something that motivates you in a really good way is is so impressive and and clearly led to your success as well. Um, but what what was it, you know, over the the course of your young career that led you in that direction over, you know, an orchestral career instead? Because, you know, so many young players, it seems like, at an age where they still don't really know themselves, they somehow commit to one direction or another in this way, and I think it's so interesting and revealing, actually, about how we how we develop into professional musicians.
3: Well, I still try to maintain a certain degree of flexibility, um, so I, I I don't I wouldn't consider myself bent on pursuing you know solo career because I do think the the whole goal is to be as complete of a musician as I can. And I think in that sense, I'm still open to, well, I, I don't have any experience in, in orchestral playing. So maybe that's that's not you know, within something that I would consider. But I think for example, chamber music is something that I would really enjoy um, and teaching as well. Uh, so I think there is definitely room for intersecting these, these uh, different aspects. But what I truly enjoy is just the simple feeling of being on stage and uh, sharing music. So, maybe this is not so appropriate to say, but I do think even as a soloist, you're still somewhat of a chamber mu- musician, mm-hmm. um, you know, interacting with the orchestra. Um, and I just happen to have grown up with soloistic repertoire because that was what my father had taught me in, in, in the past. And I think that is the avenue where I feel completely comfortable with. Um, but that doesn't mean that I'm not open to exploring other kinds of repertoire. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, it's not really a clear answer.
1: You know, I'm really glad that you brought your dad up, though, because um, working in San Antonio, your dad was a violinist in the orchestra. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I knew that you studied with him, and I wonder. You know, we talked with Michael Stern a little bit about this when he was on the podcast last season, and you know what that, what that's like growing up with. A parent who's not only your parent but but also your teacher. And as a parent myself, like I wonder, do you like carve out time where it's like, okay, now we're dad and daughter, <laughs> and then you know, in this window of time, okay, now we're teacher student, or is it just kind of blurry and it just happens? kind of throughout the day how does th- how did that work for you
3: okay so if I have to be truly honest I would say our relationship was rather one-dimensional <laughs> as in <laughs> he was always my teacher you know but, but that, that doesn't mean that I don't appreciate his fatherhood of course uh because it's it's just it just so happens that the majority of his fatherhood was being a teacher and mm-hmm. and this is the one identity that I can never forget. And because he's he's helped me so much, he's guided me throughout my childhood to, to become you know, to instill a certain passion for music. So this is something that I'm eternally grateful for. That said, it's it's difficult to imagine him as solely a father figure. Mm. And we we did have our roadblocks here and there, you know, throughout the years. I, I do have to say he fits rather uh, perfectly, in the stereotype of you know being an Asian parent and and being completely strict, but that is just something that we we I think as humans have to come to terms with that parenthood is is really not an easy task and I think he has done so much for me that uh, that it's it 's so admirable and uh, you know and he he 's asked nothing in return and it 's just about instilling this kind of passion and I feel very fortunate that he was also a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, and he still is now, uh, so and I feel incredibly fortunate that it somehow worked out between us so we 're still on good relationship uh, on good terms, so <laughs> it 's just something of a miracle <laughs> <really>. yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> that 's great so i 'm always curious, I mean, you know, my parents, particularly my mother and my grandfather, uh you know for me really instilled uh this passion for music, and neither of them were professionals but you know, I can remember early on my mother would practice the piano with me and we'd pretty much only fight. The only reason I'm good at the flute is because my mother didn't know how to play it and couldn't tell me what to do with it. Um, so, I love it. So, you know, at what at what point for you, um, you know, as you grew into an adult, did you start to feel like this was something that you truly had a passion for and, and did with intention as opposed to you know, this was the thing you'd done since before you can remember, and you didn't know why. Mm. You know,
3: I I remember clearly. It's such a great question because I can answer this very specifically. I think it was my first time in Aspen Music Festival, so this was my first summer camp, um, and I remember taking several lessons, studying with Paul Cantor, uh, who, who who teaches at Rice, um, and he was the one who really opened up my mind and. And really made me realize how much freedom and empowerment uh, an individual can have. And I think that pivot of of thinking about, okay, so it's not only my father who <laughs> it it's not just my father what what he says I have to do, you know it's not it's not such a one-dimensional thing. And I think after studying with Paul Cantor and realizing there's so much more to explore in in music and repertoire and Working with so many other colleagues uh, during the summer camp was what made me realize that this is so much more fun mm-hmm. <laughs> than than what it what it was, um, because there is just uh, so much shared camaraderie, and uh, you know, playing music together with other people was was what makes it so meaningful. Mm-hmm. I
0: guess. Paul Canner is such an exceptional teacher. I know mm. um, he was teaching at CIM when I was in grad school there, and so many of his students not only uh, have gone on to have such successful careers, but they all express exactly what you just expressed, that he mm-hmm. b- brought out the joy of music for all of them as well and made them fall even more in love with it. So that's really cool. Uh, Nancy, tell us about your your violin. Uh, you have mm. a great, a beautiful instrument, and. Um, you know, I was just having a discussion with a, a friend on the golf course yesterday because I, I said, man, I really need a new set of clubs. And mm. and he said, well, don't spend too much money because you're not a really good golfer, so it's not going to help that much. And he's right. And it's true. You know, golf clubs, like an instrument, you know, you you got to have a great set of clubs to play golf, but you also have to be a great golfer. I'm neither. I I don't I'm not a good golfer and I don't have a good set of clubs, but you are an exceptional violinist and you also have a beautiful instrument. So tell us about this this fiddle you have.
3: Yes, I'm very grateful. So the the fiddle that I have was, it came into my hands, I think it's been nearly two years. Um, It's from a private sponsor who's affiliated with the Foundation of France. And the maker is uh, Joseph Guarneri, Guaneri del Gesù. So I feel incredibly fortunate, of course, to have such a big name. But big name aside, I think the instrument itself has... um, something very human about it. Uh, you know, especially when you want to spin something very lyrical from the instrument, it just gives everything to you. Um, and it withstands a lot of power. So you can kind of dig into the strings as much as you want. And it still is able to produce something very expansive and, and complex. Um, so it, I, I do feel quite fortunate. It's a composite violin, um, but all the parts are original. So... I think someone just put all the pieces together, which are dated from 1730 to 33. Um, so mm. considered a late Diljezu. And uh, so it's a bit of a conundrum. Um, but the names have changed. I, I remember my sponsor, when she first uh, gave me the instrument, she called it the, uh, the puzzle, which, which suits, mm. suits the instrument. But now they, they all of a sudden changed it to the sphinx. And I'm not sure why. <laughs> <So> it's a <laughs> bit of a bit of a puzzle in that respect. But.
0: It's a core sounding name. I like that.
2: Yeah,
1: I'm curious when you're, um, you know, when you get these instruments on loan, is that something that you seek out, or are you sought out to play these instruments? How does that work?
3: It's it's a bit of a tough journey, I have to say, because I I feel I I think I'm one of the more fortunate ones. So I didn't, I don't remember. Yeah, I think at that point, I wasn't actively seeking out an instrument. I had a Galeano from, uh, from Florian Land hard-fine violins, uh, on loan. So it was equipped with a rather fine instrument already. Um, but my teacher back then, and I studied briefly at the Queen Elizabeth Chapelle. So my teacher, Augustin Dumay, he actually recommended me to the sponsor because she was looking for a, a sponsoree, you know, someone to, to take the violin. And uh, so I happened to be that person and it just fell into my hands like that
2: <laughs> yeah. this aspect of you know violin playing and string playing in general uh, as a wind player just blows my mind because you know we play on like used cars that's pretty much it <laughs> you know <laughs> and i i have a i have a beautiful instrument which i also feel you know incredibly uh fortunate to have and still fortunate to be able to own, but this aspect is, is like another level. And um, yeah, I can only imagine as a player to have that opportunity to have that, you know, I, I feel like I'm married to my instrument. You know, to, <laughs> I can go to any shop in the world and play flutes and there will never be another flute I want to play. And I feel lucky for that. But to have this opportunity to to come to be with an instrument like that just uh, seems amazing to me. And um, and I'm, I'm so happy for for people like you that get to get to have that experience, and I and I often wonder, like, well, what is it? What is it like if you, you know, are an incredible player and just don't don't have access or don't have the opportunity or mm-hmm. haven't, you know, had the fortune to to have an instrument like that? So, what what do you feel that's different when you play uh, the Guarneri versus you know other instruments that you've had over the course of your career?
3: Um, I think the one determining factor would be that if you do play an instrument where you feel, you know, at that split second, you're just like, wow, you know, it, there's there's this uh, capability of a good instrument to really expand your horizons, to to allow you to discover other aspects of sound that you never listened uh, or never heard. Um, and I think this is what I had with the Del Jesu. But funnily enough, it, it didn't happen in the beginning. So this is another odd thing about good instruments, is that they, they grow over time, and they have the ability to, to develop in sound. They kind of cater to your, your way of playing. You also cater to the soundscape of that specific instrument, and it's just a mutual growth. And I think with past instruments, I didn't have that much of a you know, two-way relationship it was more of trying to get the best out of this instrument and trying to to tweak bits and pieces of my own playing so that I can adjust to to the strengths of this instrument while uh, not basically, you know, enhancing the weakness of so-called of an instrument. So,
1: so you mentioned um, before, before we uh, got on this podcast today, you mentioned that you are newly married and you're married to a luthier, yes?
3: Yes. <laughs> I
1: wonder... Um, I don't wanna cause any like discord in your in your your new marriage. But um does he work on your violin? Oh yeah,
3: he does. He does. Okay, good.
0: <laughs> yeah. that,
1: that's good. For free. For free. Oh well for that's fine. That's
0: that's nice. Yes, yeah, so that's good.
1: I didn't know, know if that was free. something that like you just don't bring into the relationship because that's high pressure and you don't want to
3: mess with that. So oh, oh no, oh no, oh no. This is this is not This is not even on a business level. So, yes, it's just, it goes without saying that he has to (laughs) provide these services. Perfect.
0: I I think it was written in the vowels, actually. Yes. Right? You had to to take care of your instrument. (laughs) Um, Nancy, I've been following you on Instagram and I know some of the things you've been up to during COVID uh, because you've been putting out some um, uh, daily practice videos of just practice tips and just different things that you're working on and you're playing to keep your. To keep your playing in shape right now, that you're not performing all over the place. What else have you been doing uh, during these last seven months?
3: Okay, so uh, aside from these, <laughs> yeah. I've been trying to expand my repertoire as well, just probably like, like uh, many of my colleagues, they're doing the same thing. So, mm-hmm. expanding repertoire, getting to know, getting to work through pieces that you have not had an opportunity to, um, especially during busy times. Um, and then also teaching. Teaching has been something that I've uh, come to develop a passion for. Um, and I think aside from that, I've been doing some hiking, <laughs> uh, nice. spending some time in, in nature, uh, reading a little bit more, um, keeping up with the news, <laughs> keeping up with, <laughs> with, with you know what the world is, is going through. Um, but yeah, so, so I think the, the main takeaway from this was uh, teaching.
1: So are you teaching um, just virtually? Do you get to do any in-person teaching? And I'm, I mean, I'm assuming you're doing in virtual stuff, at least some, and how is
3: that? How does that work for you? Yeah, so teaching-wise, not at the moment in person. Uh, everything is conducted online. Um, how is that? I think surprisingly very well. Mm. Everything's going quite smoothly. Um, because I think with teaching, the, the main caveat was that you you're you can't be hands-on right and but I think it also challenges you to articulate everything as clearly as you can to the student um so in that sense it's been a huge educational opportunity for myself to to be able to do that uh I'm still trying to learn how to do that I think (laughs) over the course of the months but um I would say you you don't lose that human connection even if it's online but I still I still crave of course meeting with people in in person Um, so there's there's still a big difference but this is not a bad substitute Hmm.
1: all right I have a very important question to ask because you and I are both native Texans yes and Mike is going to pretend that he's a Texan because he went to he lived in Houston for like two years and he Uh, knows things about what I'm about to ask you oh yes you spent four four
0: years years there a true Texan
1: (laughs) Four years. I'm curious what cuisine you miss more from Texas. Mm. Do you miss the barbecue or do you miss the Tex-Mex? Because I have a very clear answer on what I miss.
3: I, I have a very clear answer as well. Tex-Mex. <laughs> yes. Tex-Mex. Oh, for Stephanie. sure, right? Yeah. Tex-Mex uh, all y- the way.
1: <laughs> you just can't get, you cannot get, I mean, obviously it's in the, it's in the name Tex-Mex, but you cannot get, you can't replicate it. Anywhere else, once you no, cross no. the border into Texas,
3: it's delicious. And everywhere wow. else, it's like. Eh. Although I have to say, I, I'm not sure. I think I've heard rave reviews about uh, Mexican cuisine in California as well. Sure, and I think that's probably. Di- that, I think that is different
2: from Texas. Totally different, animal. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah. very, yeah. unrelated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <Yes. laughs> Mike. What do you think? Uh, uh, what do Tex-Mex you well
2: versus barbecue in Texas? Yeah, I, kn- yeah, I know what you're going to say. It's not even a. Uh, Why are we having this conversation? It's (laughs) Tex-Mex.
1: Okay, good. I was worried. I know you're a barbecue guy. I was worried you were going to go barbecue. I love
2: barbecue. I respect Texas barbecue tremendously. I enjoy it. Kansas City (laughs) is, of course, one of the (laughs) foremost and uh, uh, pivotal uh, barbecue centers, which I also enjoy. But with respect to Tex-Mex, there is no greater Mex (laughs) than (laughs) Tex-Mex.
0: It, the Tex-Mex is really good. Now, I've never lived in Texas, but I've gone down to work with the Houston Symphony many times, and uh, I always try to get some really good Tex-Mex and some good brisket because there are some really mm-hmm. good brisket places down there too. You know, our good friend Lyle Lovett, who's from Houston, I believe what he says is the worst part about going on the road is, is not uh, not being able to eat the great. Tex-Mex food of Texas. It's just having to eat everyone else's Mexican food yes. across the country because it's just not as good.
1: But I found that too, because I, you guys, I'm not even going to lie to you. My mouth is watering right now because I'm thinking <laughs> about Tex-Mex. But so when I went to the University of Michigan, um, for I was there for four years and I went through for real serious withdrawals uh, for Tex-Mex. Like I, I would be there I I remember my freshman year and it had been a month and I was like oh my gosh I need Mexican food I need it right now so I went home at like fall break and I only ate Mexican food for a week <laughs> like the whole week that I was home it's it's a real Thing that you can only get in Texas. I'm so happy.
0: Well, you can tell that we're uh, recording this episode at six o'clock at, at night because all we're talking about <laughs> yeah. is food we for we like don't the even last care 10 minutes about here. Music
2: anymore. We just we've,
0: we've, we've really gotten <laughs> off topic, we've really digressed. I'm but so it's happy. been a fun discussion. <laughs> but you know, to kind of wrap this all up though, you know, to kind of tie this all in. Um, Nancy, you mentioned earlier one of your favorite things about being an international soloist is getting to be on stage and communicate with other musicians and make music in in, in that way. Um, but what do you think, besides not being able to eat, you know, great Tex Mex mm. food or various <laughs> other food from your region? What are some of the other more difficult things about being a soloist touring all over the place?
3: Um, loneliness, yeah. Um, but I think I've Throughout the years, I've tried to convert the term loneliness to solitude <laughs> um, because I do think that there's a, a nuanced difference between these. So it, with solitude, I think I've embraced or tried to enjoy alone time. But I, I mean, of course, it's it's better with productivity. You know, it, you're always a little bit more productive And for, for me, at, at least to be alone and to, to really focus at that in the present moment. So I think this is something that has been difficult for me because I, I crave, you know, social interaction. So I think when you're on the road, this is probably the most common answer that musicians give, um, that you're, you're always, you end up being alone for most of the time. Um, I think another thing would be, well, I guess it's, it goes hand in hand. The fact that you, you know, you really need to make the best out of the time that you spend with people because this is the only way where you can really, uh, Grow as a person, and by growing as a person, you grow as a musician. So this kind of um, finding that nice balance between not being too sacked away, uh, deprived of of human interaction, and spending time alone in your room practicing and preparing for pieces, um, yeah, that that's quite important, and that's a challenge that I think I'm still trying to cope with. Well, not now because we're in lockdown, and I'm <laughs> not lucky to have my husband with me. So, yeah. Yeah.
2: But that was going to be my question actually is, you know, in the normal times, how many weeks uh, on average will you spend, you know, on the road, away from your home, away from the people that you know? Mm, I think last year, because it was so competition focused, I
3: spent a lot of time preparing um, by myself. So I would say on the road, it was not so often. Um, But this year, until COVID hit, I was supposed to be, you know, concertizing quite a lot, you know, for 20, 30 concerts a year. So that that would have added up. But now we're at home again.
1: (laughs) You said that you were going to be performing um, the commissioned piece that you, um, you performed in 2018 for the competition. Um, Where are you or where were you? going to be uh, performing that
3: oh so next year I am uh, that concert is still set to happen oh great it will take place in China uh, in Sichuan Um, but for this year I was supposed to perform the same exact piece on tour with the China Phil in North America we're due to tour I think seven cities just across the continent Um, but that was planned for November and has been cancelled unfortunately or postponed for a later date yeah yeah Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, Nancy, where have been some of your favorite places to perform around the world, besides mm. the Kaufman Center for the Performing Arts, of course, <laughs> one of the great halls of the world? Where- well,
3: de- definitely, very, very much so, of course, because I think the Kaufman Center, architecturally speaking, it's 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 so beautiful, and the acoustics in there are, are really amazing. I think another place that I uh, that I vividly remember is the Huset in Stockholm, Sweden. Mm. Um, very gorgeous hall. Acoustic-wise, maybe not, uh, not quite on the level of Kaufman. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, again, architecturally, the interior is just very gorgeous. So the name of this podcast is
1: Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, right? So we always ask our guest two very important questions. The first is, what is your drink of choice? If you were going to walk into a bar mm-hmm. um, after a concert, what would you order? Mojito. Nice. nice, hands on. <laughs> yes, delicious. I love
0: chewing on the sugar sticks. Those are so good. Mm.
3: Yeah, yeah, mojito, and maybe gin and tonic as well. Both excellent answers. All right, so then,
1: if you were going uh, walking into a bar after a performance, and you saw Beethoven sitting at the bar, and you ordered your <laughs> mojito, what would you want to ask Beethoven?
3: I think this depends on how drunk I am. Um, But if I were were super drunk, (laughs) if (laughs) I were super drunk, I'd probably ask um, how it was for him to deal with his deafness, you know, imminent deafness. Um, If I were a bit sober, I would be a little bit more sophisticated and ask what his opinions are on interpretive freedom. You know, how how performers Mm. nowadays interpret his works. um, Because, I mean, he was someone who, who heralded free thoughts within, you know, rationality, because I mean, he grew up, you know, kind of being the representative of the Enlightenment era. So yeah, I think that those are my two top questions for him.
0: I like Both that. We've never, questions. we've never had anyone give a, if I was drunk and or if I was sober answer. I liked that.
1: I, I like that. We should how many start incorporating that. Yeah,
0: I might have <laughs> just added another element to that question. Cool. <laughs> well, another thing we like to do, uh, uh, from time to time when Beethoven walks into a bar is, is some recommended listening, uh, mm. for our podcast listeners. Do you have anything that you've been listening to lately that you yes. would rec- like to recommend?
3: I have been listening on repeat incessantly, uh, Rodolupus recording of the Brahms um, mm, nice. Yeah, it's, it's over the course of the last few months, I think when when the, of course the pandemic started unraveling and uh, lockdown was initiated, I, I was super depressed. And <laughs> mm-hmm. think I think his recording of the E flat major one it was just something out of this is just something out of this world. And it brought me to tears, provided comfort, and I think the evolution of my response to the recording has changed as well. And I was actually just listening to it yesterday when I was on a walk to Alamo uh, Park in San Francisco and it just uh, brought different layers of meaning to it and it's more of an optimistic hope now that I derive from it so yeah
0: nice he's a brilliant pianist I got to hear him several times in Cleveland with the Cleveland Orchestra so great especially with Brahms Um, Mike Stephanie you guys have any recommended listening this week well sure Uh, you know
2: I wanted to keep uh, with our violin theme for the episode and And I was thinking to myself, you know, there's so much amazing uh, violin music. Mm. And there's some amazing violin music that I love to play myself on the flute. And uh, most of the time I do it in the privacy of my own home. So I won't be, you know, humiliated by actual string players. But, uh, But there is one piece. And only one that I can really think of that was written for the flute and is most often stolen by violinists. And I don't know why you people need to steal. You have enough of your own. Just leave us alone. But uh, it is a phenomenal piece. And I have to admit, it might be Better on the violin, or at least better uh, in the hands of one of the legends of violin, uh, David Oistrakh. Mm. And um, this recording of the uh, Prokofiev Flute Sonata, also known as the Violin Sonata Number Two mm-hmm. uh, in D Major. Um, was actually one of the most uh, influential recordings for me, and I I remember listening to this when I had no idea who David Oistrakh was. My my flute teacher just said, "Go home, listen to David Oistrakh play this piece, and come back later." And I think that was the whole lesson. I don't think <laughs> anything else to me, and it was it was a very worthwhile lesson. So I'll we'll put a, a link in the in the show notes, but check out this wonderful recording of Prokofiev's, uh, violin sonata number no. two with David Oistrakh. originally written for flute premiered. <laughs> I'm almost sure on violin. It was, it was only mm. premiered on flute later. Uh, mm. it's one of my favorite things to play and, um, listening to Oistrakh play it is, uh, is transformational, I think for me. So
3: enjoy mm. it.
1: Well, I too stuck, uh, with the violin theme today and, uh, I chose a recording of the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, um, Itzhak Perlman and the Philadelphia Orchestra. I was preparing to play at Rice, actually, uh, for the winner of the the concerto competition. One of the years I was there, I was playing Tchaikovsky, and this was the recording that I kind of stuck with me as I was preparing, and it's the one I go to now when I when I want to listen. And just a fabulous musician
0: and. Uh,
1: Great recording. Check it out.
0: Well, I feel a little left out because I do not have a violin recommendation. (laughs) Although these are uh, two symphonies of Sibelius, Symphony 2 and 5. They both have great violin parts, though, I will say. Um, They're two of my favorite symphonies of all time, and I I recently got this CD back out. Yes, I still listen to CDs. I don't – I'm old-fashioned. I like to listen to the CD. But I recently got this disc back out, and I've been listening to it a lot the last couple weeks. It's – Osma Vanska and the Minnesota Orchestra playing Sibelius two and five, and that orchestra with that conductor. I mean, they just play Sibelius brilliantly. Check out that recording as well. It's if you're uh, missing really great orchestral repertoire right now, like we all are. Uh, check that out. Well, Nancy, it has been so much fun having you on. Beethoven walks into a bar today. Uh, we've learned so much about not only your career but about Tex Mex, about all sorts of cool things. <laughs> um, and uh, we wish you the absolute best moving forward here. I know things are crazy right now with COVID and you're not performing um, like you want to be, like we all want to be. But we will get back to normal. And we, when we do, we very much look forward to having you back here at the Kansas City Symphony and hearing another concerto. So thanks for joining us today.
3: Likewise. It's
1: been a pleasure. I think the goal should be that when Nancy comes back, we all need to see if we can find good Tex-Mex here in Kansas City. Ooh, yes, there
3: we go. Mojitos <laughs> we as well. Okay, good.
0: Yeah, and mojitos, <laughs> yes.
3: Thanks so much, Nancy. It's been a pleasure. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.
0: Well,
2: in our next episode, we'll be joined by the special woman who sent me to prison. Lee Lynch runs a program at Lansing Correctional Facility called Arts in Prison, and she is committed to the idea that arts are an essential part of helping inmates cope with the stress of prison and preparing them to reenter society as more peaceful and constructive citizens. We'll also find out if anyone really wears orange and why visitors may not wear blue. All this and more next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar.